But we've been on a journey with Abraham over the last you know, few weeks, um, covering the course of you know, a period of 60 years in his life uh, and you know, approximately 10 chapters through the book of Genesis. And it's, impossible, it's been impossible for me not to get introspective as we look at the life of Abraham. And you know, cardinal rule number one generally is that when you're preaching, don't share with the congregation how vulnerable you are or don't, uh, don't share about how much struggle you've had in making the preparation. And I'm going to break that rule and say I've actually had a ton of struggle in getting this sermon prepared. I haven't felt ready for it, and this doesn't even quite seem real. But in sharing that, I don't want people to be distracted by my struggle, but in struggling with this text and with the life of Abraham and the journey of faith, I want us to, to maybe get something out of that from my personal, my, my own struggles, that, that maybe there's something in that for you. And so I want to share that just being vulnerable, saying that this has been very difficult, and, and hopefully it's not, it doesn't come across badly, but um, that, that this is something where we can actually take something and run with it and, and learn from it. So as I've looked at the life of Abraham, it's reminded me of my own um, call to preach. And to be honest, I was ready to pack it in this week and text Stephen James and say, can you guys take it over for me? Because I'm not, I don't want to do it. But, and the only thing that's really kept me going is that God's reminding me, I have this call on your life, and it's not about your feelings and your emotions, but it's about the call that I have on you, and I will strengthen you, and I will encourage you, and I will take you on this journey of faith. And so this is my third time up on the stage, and I'm not going to be able to use this excuse much longer you know, if I come up more and more. It's like, you know, you're not going to allow me to, to get away with that. But, you know, I felt very clearly eight years ago, when we, when we came to this church, I felt God drop this word on my heart, you are going to preach up here one day. And in hindsight, I've looked back on that, and over the course of my life, another 10 years before that, very kind of subtly, God has placed that desire on my heart. And so in total, 18 years before I've even been up on the stage. And it's kind of reminded me, the stuff that's happened to Abraham has happened over a period of 60 years. And even when we come from where Steve preached on Genesis chapter 18 last week and where we are today, there's a period of about 15 to 20 years. And the only thing that, that prefaces that is that after a period of time, God spoke again to Abraham. It's like, wow. We don't know what happens in that 15 years before. And so for me, as I stand up here, it's like eight years ago I felt that explicit call on my life Ten years before that, things were beginning to move. Um, that now, in hindsight, I can see um, God was preparing me for this time. And, and part of the struggle has been trying to force it. It's like, how do I remain patient and humble and faithful and then struggle and wrestle with the call that God has on my life? And, and it, it has been tough, to be honest. Um, and I haven't felt to, to pressure Steve or James or anyone in the congregation, get me up on the stage. And part of that has been a struggle. It's like watching other people you know, come before me and, and say, God, I thought you told me that this was for me. And so it, it, it's here. And I guess now it's, um, you know, the assignments I've been given as I, as I preach have been Good Friday, where it's that deferred hope, and, and Exodus and the plagues, and, and now Genesis chapter 22, which is arguably one of the most controversial texts in the Bible. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm closing the series. <laughs> the moral of the story, I guess, is be careful what you wish for. 
but Genesis 22, the, the, the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. It's probably the most challenging text in the Bible. It's, it's offensive to us. And it's a scripture that can, if we allow it to, sit in our hearts and cause offense if we don't wrestle with it properly. It's proof that faith isn't logical. And faith isn't necessarily within the realm of human reason. So as we look at this text, some people have sought to deny what the text actually means. Some people have actually said this isn't actually about a literal sacrifice. And some people have sought to deny it because they say, this doesn't line up with my notion of God. And I'd like to say, that doesn't matter. What matters is that God's notion lines up with God's. God's notion of God is what we need to think about. And I'd like to say, God doesn't always provide good things. And when I say that, God doesn't provide things that we always want or desire, but God gives us what we need. And so I think we can fall into a very dangerous trap if we only think that God can provide what we term as good things. And so as the uh, great songstress and poet Megan Trainor once said, (laughs) who's that sexy thing standing over there? Oh, that's me standing in the mirror. And I'd like to say, if we have a God who lines up with our notion of God, then we're looking at an idol in the image of God that looks exactly like us. And we have to ask the question, is this God? We, do, we wrestle with this question, is this God? Would God do that? And it's a passage that we can endlessly mine and we can debate for meaning with this very nature of the sacrifice being called into question. And I want to say that this is a literal definition of sacrifice. This is not metaphorical. It's not spiritual in terms of what we think of it. And my favorite character, literary character, is Sherlock Holmes. And Sherlock Holmes once said, once you eliminate the impossible, whatever remains, no matter how improbable, must be the truth. And so I want to say that the improbable truth in this text is that God is asking Abraham to sacrifice his son, to kill him on the altar, and to burn him as an atonement sacrifice. And so this is a question that we need to tackle head on. This question, this notion of sacrifice is one that we need to tackle head on. It's like when Jacob wrestles with God. He won't let him go until God blesses him. And I want to say that with this text, we need to wrestle it. I've had to wrestle with it personally. And I'm, I'm not willing to let it go until we understand what it means because in this text is some fundamental truth. And it's here that some of the, pur- the, the key purposes of God can be found. And if we let them go, if we let this text offend us, then we miss, we're missing the point of what God is trying to say to us. And so there's two questions that I want us to consider as we look at this text. And I'm not going to answer them explicitly, but I want, want you to have them in the back of your mind as we, as we go through this text. The first question is, what message did Israel receive from this text? And then in understanding that, what does that mean for us? And then secondarily, what does this passage reveal about God and the overarching theme of salvation? 
So I want to take some time just to read the text, Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 through 14. I'm just going to read it. Don't let me interrupt myself. So I want to read it outright and then preach on from there. But sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father? Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? God answered, God himself, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now, that I, now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Now I want to preface anything I say now by saying that God didn't want the sacrifice of a human being. And we can look at this text and say, well, Dave, that's, that's pretty easy in hindsight. The passage says it. Abraham, uh, Isaac doesn't get killed. But if you look back over Scripture, when Noah gets off the ark in Genesis chapter 9, this is what sets the precedent. For your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each man too. I will demand an accounting for the life of his fellow man. Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made man. So God's already stipulated before, as soon as Noah comes off the boat into this restored life, I don't want you to kill anybody. I don't want you taking the life of another man because man is the pinnacle of my creation and man has been made in my image. So we've been on this journey with Abraham and it's a physical journey but it's also a spiritual journey. This journey of of Abraham walking into obedience. And Abraham's no hero. We've seen him fail on multiple accounts in many of the tests that God has given him. And he's subject to these various tests which then culminate in what, what Jewish scholars call the Akedah, which is the tenth test, Abraham sacrificing, bind, it literally means binding his son Isaac. 
These tests have revealed Abraham's frailty, his humanity. But he's still considered the father of our faith. Why? And I think primarily, as we've learned over the course of this period of time, is that because God is faithful. And Abraham's faith journey has not been dependent on his own obedience, but on God's faithfulness. I think there's a little bit more of a complex answer to that. More, rather, and God is faithful is the, is the best answer. But I think I want to I pose an, a couple of questions uh, to answer this as well. And I want to... These are not serious questions, but... What was the first... Who, who were the first people to fly a plane? Who was second? What was the first sound movie? The, ja- the jazz singer. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so who was asking who was second doesn't really fly, but... Who was the first person to run a sub-four-minute mile? Roger Bannister. Who was second? Who was the first person to climb Mount Everest? Who was second? We don't know, right? Generally, we don't remember who's second. The first person to do things is the pioneer, and we always remember who is first. And why is Abraham so important to us? Because Abraham is first. Abraham is a pioneer. And Abraham's faith journey is not necessarily the best. It's not necessarily the most fluid. It's not necessarily the most packaged. Or even, I think there's better stories of faith in the Bible than Abraham. So why do we remember Abraham? Because Abraham was first. And there's a very clear picture of God. There's this picture of God calling Abraham without necessarily giving him a destination. So Abraham's not even the first person to have faith because we can look back over Hebrews and the series that we've done before that with Noah and things like that. But Noah was given a direction. Noah was told, build an ark because I'm a, a flood is coming. Abraham's just asked, leave your family and your fathers and your, and your mother and your household and go to a land that I will yet show you. And Abraham's obedience results in the foundation of a nation. So there's more to this story than just one man. And at the heart of this narrative is an interaction between man and God that's so strong that it results in the formation of a covenant. And that's a covenant where God ultimately redeems his relationship with man. Post the fall. If we look at Genesis chapter 3 verse 9 and we compare that to Genesis chapter 22 verse 1, God calls out, to Adam in the garden. Where are you? He says to Abraham in verse 1 of chapter 22, he said to him, Abraham, there's this intimate call on both of these men. But notice their response. Both of them recognize his voice. But what does Adam do? Adam says, I was afraid, I was naked, and so I hid. We've witnessed the destruction of that intimate relationship that God has with man. 
But when God calls out to Abraham, he responds, here I am. Despite his, his previous failures, despite everything that he'd done before that, he recognizes God's voice and he can respond confidently, here I am. I'm ready for what you're asking me to do next. God chose Abraham as the conduit for his redemptive purposes. And this is a story about Abraham's journey into faith. And when we look back from Genesis chapter 12 to Genesis chapter 22, we can see that it's a very circular narrative. And I don't have time, I'd love to have time to to explain that in more depth, but the way that Abraham's call starts and the way that it ends is the same. The way that God asks Abraham to do things in chapter 22 is the same as the way that he asks him to do it in chapter 12. And chapter 22 is not the end of Abraham's life, but I'd like to say it's the culmination and the apex of this story, and anything that comes after that is a postscript. This is the culmination of Abraham's story, and it ends as it began. So God has asked Abraham to sacrifice his son. Let's define what sacrifice is. Sacrifice is the act of slaughtering an animal or a person or surrendering a possession to God or a divine or a supernatural figure. It's the act of giving up something valued for the sake of something else regarded as more important or worthy. God doesn't only ask Abraham to sacrifice his son. He's asking him to give him as as a burnt offering, as a sin offering. So what is that? A burnt offering is a sacrifice of atonement. It's acknowledgement of the sin nature and a request for a renewed relationship with God, a holy God and a sinful man. So we can look at Abraham's response, and he willingly takes his son on this journey with him to sacrifice him. And we can even look at what Steve preached last week with this story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the account of Abraham bargaining for the safety of Sodom and Gomorrah, for God to stay his hand. Abraham is is bold enough to say, if there's 50 down to 40 to 30 to eventually 10, will you save this city? And God says yes. And this is really the first account in any religious text, of man bargaining God down. And you can say, why didn't he bargain for the life of his son? If he's so willing to bargain for this city, of only whom he knows Lot is there, why, why is Abraham willing to go into bat for these guys when he knows they're sinners, when he knows that the city is destructive, and yet he won't do that for Abraham? And I'd like to say there's two answers to that. There's faith and there's familiarity. And what do I mean by that? So this notion of sacrifice was fundamental to the religions of the time. And Abraham is living in Canaan. And Canaanite custom is that they sacrifice their children to the gods. Child sacrifice was this apex of worship. And you can see why they get to where they get to because the gods in the notion of the Canaanites and any of those other Middle Eastern cultures of the time, is that you can only appease the gods by giving them more. How do you make them happy and how do you bring peace and prosperity to yourself is that I give more and more and more and more until eventually what do I give that's most prized to me? In that, it should still be for us, but in that period of time, the firstborn son. And so I appease the gods by giving them my firstborn son. That just makes sense. And so when God calls Abraham, 
and says, give to me your son, your only son, that's familiar to the Israelites when they're reading this text and it's familiar to Abraham. And so I don't think he argues for that is because when God says, this is what I want, Abraham understands that and it's like, this is what you're going to get. Whether God asks for a perfect lamb or the, the, the doves or anything unblemished, it's the same thing. We're not questioning that. God is the offended party and so we can only be, we can, God can only be appeased by the things that he asks and he asks for Abraham's son Isaac. And you might say, well, what about Ishmael? Abraham had another son. This wasn't his only son, but it was the son of promise. And Ishmael is discounted and excluded in this particular request because Abraham tried to make things happen. God made a very clear promise. You are going to have a son. Abraham tries to do that in the flesh. The result is Ishmael, and Ishmael is blessed in his own way. But he's excluded from this. He is not the son of promise. He's not the son, the one and only son whom Abraham loves. So I'd like to say that God, as we've seen, doesn't want the sacrifice of a son. But he does want the surrender of a father. And it's not surrender when you know the answer. God knows the answer because of his providence. We know the answer because we read the text and we can see that in hindsight, but Abraham doesn't know that, and so he's confronted with a test. And reason and logic should say to Abraham, this doesn't make sense. God, you promised me a son, and through that son you promised that the nations would be blessed, and through that son you promised that Israel would become a nation and that the the descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the, the sand on the seashore. But faith confronts those issues, and it trusts Abraham trusts despite not being able to see the outcome. So the true test then is not would Abraham obey. We know that he has and that he will, but rather what's being tested here is Abraham's discernment of God's character. Is this another God who's asking me to sacrifice my son? Or, in the course of my experience over the last 60 years, where God has been consistently faithful despite my disobedience, is this a God of mercy? And am I going to trust him with my son despite not knowing what's going to happen to him? When you love someone, you trust them. Abraham loves God. He's walked with him for a period of 60 years. And so he trusts. And so I want to look in this passage at two, what I think are two critical words within two critical verses. So let's look at verse 5 in chapter 14. In chapter 22, sorry. Abraham said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, that key word is worship, and then we will come back to you. 
And in response to Isaac's question, where is the lamb? Abraham answers, God himself will provide the lamb, provide or provision being that key word for the burnt offering, my son. Now you might say to yourself, Abraham knows that he's going to kill his son, but he's telling everybody he's going to worship. You're like, what? What's our notion of worship? Generally, it, it's happy and there's song and dance. And you're like, you are going to kill your son and you're going to sing and dance and parade that around? What are you talking about? But we need to understand the context of the word. And this is the first use of that word, worship, in the Bible. And so we have to pay attention to that. It comes from a, a Hebrew root word, shaka, which means to bow down in reverence. And as we know, the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So Abraham and Isaac are going before God in holy reverence, bowing down to him. They're worshiping him, but it's not the worship that we know. And we need to understand the context of that worship. And Isaac is ultimately confused at this point. These guys are on a three-day journey into the desert in a mountainous region. There's largely going to be no, no plant life, no animal life. And so Isaac's wondering, we're going to offer an atonement offering. Where's the lamb? There's nowhere in the context of this region where they should have realistically found anything. Abraham's answer is clear. God himself will provide. Are we confident enough as fathers or as mothers or as brothers that we could take our we could give that response to our children? On our journey of faith, are we positive that we could say that to our kids, to our friends? the text makes clear that Abraham and Isaac walked on together and that Hebrew root term again is that they walk in lockstep, that they're in perfect unity and harmony. And so Abraham has very, must have clearly communicated to Isaac what their mission was. And so we're very bound up in the faith of Abraham, but fundamental to this text too is that the faith of Isaac. Isaac willingly goes to the altar and so he understands what he's doing, and he trusts his father implicitly on that. Are we walking in unity with our kids? I'd like to say, let's not sacrifice our kids on the altar of a ministry. I'm willing to go into violent debate with people on this. I think our kids, if you're a parent, your kids are your primary ministry. Because who's the witness in this passage? The only people that are there are Abraham and Isaac. Isaac is witnessing his father's faith. And he's walking in unity with him on that journey. Isaac understands what Abraham has been called to do. And his faith is bound up in Abraham's faith. God can't be the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob if Isaac doesn't have faith.
our kids are impl- our kids see everything that we do. It's easy to have Facebook faith or Twitter faith and to put the good things out there. It's easy for me to stand up here and tell you everything is fine and you can believe that because you don't see intimately what's going on behind the scenes. My kids see everything that I do. So am I promoting my faith to my kids? Am I imploring them to walk with God? Is my life, does it consistently stand up 24-7 behind the doors of what happens here on a Sunday? There was a period a couple of weeks ago where my son Nathan has told me time and time again I swear a lot. (laughs) Just being vulnerable on that. And I don't say the worst words, but swearing is swearing, right? And so he's told me that over and again, Dad, you're swearing too much. And my wife will say, listen to him, you're upsetting him. And then a couple of weeks ago, I tucked him into bed, and it's like 9 o'clock at night, I'm, I put him to bed, and then I, I, I go down, I'm doing other stuff downstairs, and then Jackie comes, you know, goes to tuck him in again, and she's like, you know, Nathan's up there crying his eyes out. And I go up there, and I don't want to embarrass him, but he was very upset. It's like, Dad, why are you swearing so much? Why do you keep doing that when I've asked you not to do it? And nothing has cut me to the heart more than that recently, is that my son sees who I am behind closed doors, and he can call me out on that. But it can be a very upsetting experience when you're disappointing your kids. When you're doing things that you know are wrong and yet you do them anyway. And in this context, Abraham and Isaac, Isaac sees everything that Abraham has done up to this point. Isaac understands what Abraham has been called to do and he walks in unity with him. Can we say the same for our relationships with our kids, with our friends, with anybody else? Now implicit in this text is a reference to both substitutionary sacrifice and resurrection theory. Now when you look back at Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sin, what does God do? He kills an animal and he, cl- he clothes them in, in the skin of that animal. The first reference of God sacrificing an animal to cover the sin of man. A substitutionary sacrifice. And when we look at Hebrews 11, which is the commentary for this text... What does Abraham believe? By faith, when God tested Abraham, by faith, Abraham, when God tested him, sorry, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. I've set an alarm because I went too long last time. (laughs) Reminder, I've got five minutes left. So remember here that this is a subversive text. And what do I mean by that? I mean that God flips the script. 
God takes something that we know fundamentally and he turns it upside down and he radicalizes it. So God interrupts the story. He disrupts this narrative that the Israelites would have been familiar with on child sacrifice and he interrupts it by calling it off. And the Israelites must be at this point, what is going on in the story? There's something bubbling underneath the surface that we're not aware of. So God stays Abraham's hand and Isaac doesn't get sacrificed, but God doesn't call off the sacrifice. There's still an atonement that needs to be made. There's still a substitution. That's where this, this element of substitutionary sacrifice comes in. God provides a ram. Why? Because atonement is still required. Despite the journey that Abraham and God are on, the relationship that they're in, this is still holy God and sinful man and it requires a sacrifice so that Abraham's sin can be atoned for. This is less about Abraham and it's more about God. A God who not only provides but blesses. And Abraham is blessed to be a blessing. God says to him in verse 18 of chapter 22, through your offspring all nations will be blessed. So Abraham's rewards are that he's blessed to be a blessing. And in chapter 15, God says, don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield, your very great reward. When Jesus talks in Matthew chapter 22, he's asked about what are the greatest commandments. The greatest commandments are love God and love your neighbor. And so if those are the two greatest commands, what can we reasonably expect are the greatest rewards? And I'd like to say that those greatest rewards are greater intimacy with God and greater intimacy with each other. Was Abraham physically blessed? Yes. Will we all be physically blessed? No. I'm sorry. But will we all be in greater intimacy with God? Yes. Are we willing to be in greater intimacy with each other? We should be. We can read this text very literally. And it is the story of Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. But the story is also Holy Spirit inspired. And it kind of reminds me of a scene. Have you, have you ever read a book or a story where you, you read it in a certain way that you think you understand it? And then somebody explains, this is actually a metaphor for something else. And then you read it again, you're like, Wow. Now I actually understand what's going on in this story. And this is something that's happening in this text. It reminds me of a scene from Meet the Parents where the Ben Stiller character and Robert De Niro character are sitting in a car. And they turn on the, turn on the song, Puff the Magic Dragon. And they're sitting there like, great song, right? And the Ben Stiller character's like, yeah. Who would have thought it's actually not about a dragon? And the dad's like, what do you mean? (laughs) I won't explain it any more than that. But this is a Holy Spirit-inspired text, so it very clearly is the story of Abraham and Isaac, but what else do we see? Can you see salvation and atonement written all over this text? Can you see Jesus here? 
when you hear about the relationship between Abraham and Isaac as a father and a son, the son whom you love, do you see the relationship between God and Jesus, the father and son? This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. When Isaac carries the wood on his back to go to his own sacrifice, do you see Jesus there carrying the cross up to Calvary? When Isaac willingly goes to the altar, do we see Jesus in that text? Where Jesus willingly goes to the cross? Do we see that both trust their father implicitly to the point of death? Do we see that they're both on a three days journey? That Isaac is figuratively dead for those periods of three days and Jesus is entombed for three days? There's no hope. There's no life. Do we understand that the place of Moriah, where Abraham is called to sacrifice Isaac, is the same place where God visits David and commands Solomon to build a temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1? Do we see that that same place is theoretically where we think that Jesus was crucified? Do we understand that when Abraham says the Lord will provide a lamb, that he's speaking prophetically in two ways, that God will provide for this sacrifice for them and that he's speaking very literally into the future? Do we see that when God stays his hand, stays Abraham's hand from killing Isaac, that he intervenes at just the right time and he provides? Do you see that that's similar to Romans chapter 5, verse 6, where Paul says, you see at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly? Do you see that in John chapter 1, verse 29, when John calls out, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world, that's the fulfillment of Abraham's words many years before? Do you see that God wasn't willing to ask Abraham to do something that he wasn't willing to do himself? Do you see that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall have life? Do you see that God flips the script again and that he provides himself as the sacrifice? So as we finish, I want to ask a few questions. Are you on a journey of faith like Abraham was? Are you unclear of the details of his plan? Are you being confronted with choices that go against conventional reason and logic? Is God testing your faith as you seek his will? Are you trusting for God's provision in the face of of overwhelming odds. As God blessed Abraham and reiterated his promises to him, I'd like to say that he wants to do the same for you. I'm going to hand it over to Steve. We want to go into a period of just ministering. I want to say if any of those are applicable to you or you feel like these are your struggles, that you're struggling with your faith, that you're struggling with what God is asking you to do would you pray with us after this Steve